There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Virginia native Jay Jameson earned his dream job as a Hollywood staff writer on Superman and Lois on The CW, but that came to a halt with the writer's strike on May 2nd. He joined me to explain why he and his fellow members of the Writers Guild of America are protesting the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. We are being joined by Jay Jameson, who's one of the writers on CW's Superman and Lois, also on HBO Max, right? Yes, yes. Our, our seasons one and two are on HBO Max, uh, and season three is uh tuesdays at 8 p.m on uh the cw awesome uh yeah. yeah our listeners might remember uh when you first landed the gig we had you on and we did an interview at a local success story because you grew up in richmond and went to you know au and dc for master's film and all that um but i wanted to catch up again now that the writer strikes going on um i assume you're you are wga member now as a part of the show so what was it like you know sort of landing your your quote unquote dream job and then thinking you were, you know, set for however many years <laughs> and then now suddenly, oh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely been uh, it's been an interesting couple of a uh, couple of weeks, even in the time leading up to the strike, because there was this kind of sense that it was this kind of impending thing on the on the horizon that we weren't sure if it was going to happen, but everyone was kind of sure it was going to happen. And then, you know, when we got the word, uh, you know, that the AMPTP, you know, kind of walked away from negotiations without giving a serious offer uh, or addressing a lot of our very, uh, a lot of our very serious demands um, or concerns. Uh, you know, we got that word, and it was like, all right, let's let's gear up and let's let's get out there and, and start, you know, uh, fighting for for what we believe we deserve. Yeah, I remember when I when I texted you to ask if you wanted to do an interview. You said, "I'm out picketing. I'll get back to you in a second. <laughs> so, yeah. what have you? What all? What what is picketing looked like on your end? You know, is it marching with a sign, or is what what all does it involve? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 marching with the sign. You know, you're out there uh, in, at, around the studios. Um, you know, trying to to make people aware of 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 what what our solidarity is, you know, like what, what our demands are that we're, we're here to, to demand a, a fair deal to get them back to the negotiating table. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's shutting down, uh, uh you know, productions, you know, like, uh, Teamsters, IATSE are, are, are also unified with us. They won't cross picket lines. So it's, it's getting out there to, to, you know, cause some, some disruption because, you know, we need to, and and, it, and it's and it's depriving the the studios of our of our work product. You know, like like they are making billions of dollars 
on the backs of the foundation that we lay as writers. We 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 start with a blank page, a kernel of an idea, and then it's up to us to create the document, to create the blueprint that then employs hundreds and thousands of other workers. Yeah. But you can't do any of that if you don't have a script. Right. Uh, and so we're just asking for a share in the profits, you know, like these, uh, these corporations, uh, these companies, these studios have been making billions of dollars on streaming on, on network television. And, you know, our ask is just a 2% of their profits. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I don't think is, is unreasonable at all. Um, but it should be more because the script is the most important thing. But so, but to your point, at the very least, two percent. Come on, yeah. Um, so d- go into that a little bit more for our, you know, because you're in the thick of it in in LA, and it's like probably all around you, and it's all consuming. But for folks in DC who maybe are, you know, follow entertainment just as entertainment or whatever, um, go a little more into like what demands. At least from my understanding, is it is it sort of like you know, for decades and decades, there's been Hollywood studio systems, and you know writers have gone on strikes in past years to get certain royalties but now that streaming has come in is it all these tech companies a lot of those things that were hard fought for so many years there's nothing for that for streaming right like you don't have any royalties based off of how many views something gets on netflix it's yeah the um and there are there are folks who are you know in our in our guild or in our union who are much more uh they they have a much firmer grasp on how all of this works sure. than I do. So I, I will, I will express it the way that I understand it and the way Perfect. I've experienced it. Um, and like some of the stories that I've heard from, from other folks. And then I will also, uh, Jason, I'll send you some, some great articles and, and, and whatnot to link to or reference later, but yeah. So basically it, it, it is, it comes down to streaming, you know, a lot of these, uh, tech, companies that have kind of come in and 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 you know the the Netflixes of the world and 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 disrupt- Amazon Apple all Amazon, that. exactly disrupted the way that we kind of did things with the promise of streaming and and on demand video and all of that um they disrupted you know the way that that things have worked for 100 100, 100 years and basically when we move to streaming there's the residual, like we get some residuals from streaming, but it's not the same as what we would get from network or from releasing in theaters. There's a different metric. And part of, you know, what we're fighting for is, is uh, transparency of data so that we can understand, you know, what shows are people watching? We can understand if, if there's a hit that we share in the success of the hit. The way it used to be, if a movie went to the theaters, and it made hundreds of millions of dollars, the people who helped create that movie got to share in those profits. Right. But now if a movie goes on a on just straight to a streamer and then gets billions of views or however, whatever metric they want to use to, to describe if something's a hit or not, we get the same very small base of residuals. And we don't know. Right. We don't know if what's successful and what, what's not. Right. And the same thing's happening with television, you know, um, on network television for reruns. If, you know, you wrote a script and it reran, you would get a 
percentage of that script fee again. And every right. time we ran, that percentage of the script fee would come in. It would get like a little bit less for each rerun, but it would be enough where between jobs, if you're looking for another job or if you're developing something or you know, you're between rooms, it's enough to keep you going. It's enough right. to create a middle class of writers where you're not struggling between between your 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 gigs. But now when those same shows go online for streaming, it's again a uh, pennies on the dollar in terms of what you used to get from residuals. The other thing early on in the in the like kind of the streaming the new streaming uh, uh world, they would license because there were there was like one streamer, there was Netflix at first and then there were a few, but they would Netflix would license these shows. So based on those licenses, the people who had those residual points or whatever would get mm some money from the licensing but now because all of these studios have vertical integration of their streamers their own original content their own original content there's no market for licensing and they're they're selling to themselves at a very low price so the people who created it even if they have points on the dollar or points in on for the residuals you could get less and less mm -hmm. so it's just it's just a way of trying to see where the industry is going next and protect ourselves, protect our industry and protect writing as a livelihood moving forward. Very well said. That may, that makes total sense because there's a new reality of streaming and, and everything that was fought for for years and years of re, if something reruns in syndication or makes so many box office dollars at the movies, you would get a percentage of that. That makes sense. Anyone listening to this, that makes sense. You get paid for your work, right? But now some... Now it's just these behemoth company tech companies that just are hoarding the money and there is no percentages you're getting. So um, exactly. that, that makes sense. Um, and I assume right now it's WGA, but I assume this is probably an overall giant earthquake of a reckoning that all the other guilds are like the Screen Actors Guild and DGA. And I'm, I assume all of these will probably face are facing similar thing turmoil because of streaming, right? I Absolutely. I, I know the DGA. I'm also a member of the DGA. And congrats. Um, <laughs> thank you thank you uh and uh they just to start they just started negotiating uh wednesday of this week for their for their deal and i know streaming residuals data transparency all of those things are very important aspects for them as well i can't speak to sag not a member of sag but i would imagine that that would also be uh a point of contention for them it's all a way to what they're the streamers are trying to do is they're trying to turn our profession into a gig economy. Yeah. They're trying to, you know, one of the central um, points that we're that uh, the WGA we are fighting for is a uh, uh, minimum minimum uh, sizes for uh, writers rooms, minimum staff sizes, uh, and the reason we're pushing for that is to codify norms that have been eroded right so you know one of the things that these these companies come in and do is without understanding how things are made they're just looking at line items sure. and they're, they're they're looking for efficiencies you know which i get but the thing is is you can't put numbers on the process of television making and then right. there are certain aspects of that process that are so important. So let's talk about what, you know, with, with your shows, Superman and Lois on the CW, like, for example, like 
how many writers are in the writer's room? And you said you wanted to codify like a minimum number of writers. Like what, what are you, what, what would be like a good number of writers for a room? Yeah. So it, it depends on the number of episodes, right? Right. Um, what they have, what, what the WGA, what we have proposed in the WGA is a uh, six for six episodes, one up, ep- one writer per episode. Okay. And then for each additional two episodes, one writer. I believe how that goes up to 12 once you get to like 22 episode orders as a minimum baseline. Okay. And the reason you want that is one, uh, it allows the, the, the basis of training. It allows for writers to learn. Writing, television writing is an apprenticeship type profession. It's something where you go in as a staff writer and you are mentored and taught by the upper level writers until you move up the ranks yourself. So you get experience, you learn how to break story, you learn how to go to set and produce your episode, you learn how to take it to editing and do the mix, and then you move up and then you train those who come come below you, come come after you. Mm -hmm. And what the studios are trying to do is they're trying to eliminate that and have you know, just one writer or mini rooms, which are these kind of pre green light rooms where it's just three upper level writers breaking an entire season hmm. before they decide if they're going to green light the room for a, a much cheaper price. Uh, and they're trying to create a world where it's all freelance writers. You know, you just come in, write a script, and then you're gone. You're not involved in production. You're not learning how to go on set. You're not learning how to become a showrunner. And so as a result of that, years from now, you will have eliminated all of the people and all the opportunities to learn how to become and run your own shows. And you're also undercutting the quality of the product. Like, you need writer's rooms. You need people with different voices. Even if there's one central voice of a writer... You know, even if there's someone who is an auteur, who has a very specific voice, who who knows the story they're telling, they benefit from having other people in the room with their life experiences and their points of view, sharing those things with them so that they can then filter that into their scripts. You know, even even Aaron Sorkin had a writer's room on West Wing. Sure. Like, and and they would sometimes get story by credit. They would, you know, but even if he rewrote all the scripts. Yeah. He benefited from having those writers there. And those writers benefited from learning from him. And, and they, they go on to create other great shows. They go on to create other shows. Yeah. Like Diplomat, which is a great right. show. Where you're watching The Sopranos and you see like all the, for the lack of a better word, lower level writers suddenly go off and make all these, you know, all these other great shows. Exactly. So that is something that, you know, uh, we, we, are, we are definitely intent on fighting for because... That's just what the norm was for years. It was just, you would have the, you would have writer's rooms. You would have a certain number of writers on rooms. And if you're producing 22 episodes, you'd have 10 to 12 writers at at least sometimes 14, 15, 16, sometimes other teams or whatever. And you would, those people would learn and grow and build community and then go out and create their own shows. The, the boom of, television that happened in the last few years was because of those writers rooms and the yeah. the knowledge that was learned in that process. And so there we're, we're fighting to codify that because if we don't, 
we, we what we've learned from the studios is they will take every shortcut and like every thing they can do anything that's like not written into the contract they will find a way around it for sure for sure and then and where do things stand? we talked a little before we hopped on here but where do things stand specifically with you know superman and lois and the cw uh the cw just can't which which shows recently got canceled it was kung fu and the winchesters kung fu and the winchesters um got canceled uh we're still waiting to hear um we're definitely one of the highest rated shows on the network uh but we don't know if we fit into their uh their new you know strategy so we're waiting to hear if we're going to get a season four um really hope we do uh if if the cw doesn't pick us up we're hoping that hbo max will you know i think we're we do pretty well on the platform you know once like when when we air in the states we're one of the top DC shows on the, on the, on the platform. When we air overseas, we're one of the top shows. Uh, at least that's what they tell us, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what, like when they do top shows, the top show yeah. listing, that's, we're always near the top. So we're hoping we'll get, we'll get another season. Uh, we have some really fun things planned for a, a potential season four. Um, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I have a Hollywood Reporter article from it was yesterday. Well, uh, the day as of the day we're recording this yesterday, May (laughs) May 11th, um, that says the CW has just three shows left on which they're trying. They still need to make a decision. Superman and Lois and Gotham Knights and and, uh, all American Homecoming. So and I think you got it says you guys Superman and Lois have the biggest audience of one point two million viewers over seven days compared to 675,000 for Gotham Knights. But again, your show is cost more. So yeah, we're, we're going to wait to see what happens with it. Um, yeah. But that's crazy. So, so yeah, I guess like in the, in the meantime, what, what are we, what are we doing? It's it's just, I guess, when, when did you guys stop work? What was the day? Like, what have you been up to in the meantime? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had some, uh, some trips planned like already, <laughs> like before the thing. So I was, I was traveling, doing like, had to go to a wedding and, and all of that. Right. But yeah, I mean, we'll we'll just be we'll just be out on the uh, picket lines, uh, you know, supporting via social media. You know, if people want to support, you know, we there are some um, the 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 hashtag WGA strong um, has some good options in terms of of and some resources if you want to read up more on on you know the things that we are we are fighting for. Um, the other thing that we didn't mention is, uh, AI. Uh, oh yeah. All this is coming at the same time as all this AI news. I mean, yeah. is, that, is that something that you all out there are really worried about? It's one of those things where we went into it with the idea that, you know, we would just kind of say, Hey, this is something that may be coming down the pike. So let's put a cut, like, let's, let's yeah. put a, nail it let's let's stop it at the head unless you know we can agree that ai is not something that we we should be doing right and then very dangerous slippery slope there (laughs) and the amptp pushed back harder than we thought so we said that which made us think oh this is something that we should be fighting for like this is something like you they 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 won't commit to not replacing us with robots right now and that's something that we are you know we are now concerned it's now become a, a point so we are and that's i think that's something else when you're talking about sag and dga that everyone should be you know concerned about is is the fact that 
there's a world where they they want to just create content. Like they're not concerned with making good shows or 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 art or you know exploring the human experience. They just want to create content as a churn, you know, at the mm-hmm. cheapest price point possible. And so we're definitely fighting against that as a way to protect our our space and our profession. And what what is what what is that side even thinking? Like that AI will like churn out like a first draft, and then they would hire human writers to rewrite it. Um, a, you would lose so many jobs in doing that. But B, I mean, that sort of zaps any soul or creative spark out of you know. You can't just take something that was just hammered out by a computer first and and punch it up a little. I mean, I guess you could, but it would lose that organic human element. Absolutely. It would definitely lose that that human element. There's so many interesting factors at play because, you know, one aspect of them generating a first draft, say, or treatment through AI is that now they own the underlying IP, which is a lot of the, and the writer is even further away from ownership and creative ownership of, of the work. You know, which means they're further away from the capital. They control less of the of of the money, and it is cheaper. It's cheaper for them to just generate a first draft and have a writer do a rewrite, than have the the going through the process of creating, you know, an original work through the creative process that's worked for a hundred of years and hundreds of years before that, as we were writing books and telling stories around the campfire. Yeah. You know, um, so. It's 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 all about them trying to to increase their margins for you know for shareholders versus you know generating good good art you know wow yeah the idea of a of a AI writing is something that we, we just a couple of years ago we would have like laughed about we would have thrown that out as like a joke uh, an ultimate example of oh uh, the ultimate capitalist you know evil I guess exactly um, that's crazy um, but. You know, I was just, I just and maybe just because I just reviewed it, the Air Jordan movie, Air, the Matt, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I loved it. There, There's a line in there where they're like, you know, it's just a shoe until my son steps in it. That's what Viola Davis says. Um, yeah. And so she she, you know, Michael Jordan's mom negotiates Jordan to be the first player that gets a, you know, a percentage of the shoe sales. Whereas before Nike and Converse and Adidas, they wouldn't give him a piece of that. And that's kind of like what we're talking about here. And, and oh, oh, and by the way, and Matt Damon's character, they say at the end, went on to uh, be a key um, advocate in the, this was a 2014, maybe the, um, the NCAA players class action suit to, to, to prevent them from using their name and likeness. So it's all kind of the same as the the WGA strike. If you ask me, it's like the the people that actually do the work, the people that are dunking the basketball with their tongue out or writing a script, you know, focusing, <laughs> biting their lip, focus. They should get a a portion of it, not just the people at the top running the company. So, um, anyway, check out the movie. I loved it. I know you're a basketball guy. I will. Yeah. They don't show Jordan's face, which I, it's kind of a cool choice, actually. It's just like a stand-in guy. It's awkward in one moment where you can tell the, the guy's like trying to stare at the back wall so you can't see his face. But uh, <laughs> overall, I like it because it makes it like more of a, you know, a mystique about him. And who's going to play Jordan except Jordan? So. Who's going to play Jordan? Yeah. yeah. No, it's, but, it's, well, a, it's well, really like good. AI face replacement, which, again, you know, again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The deep, what do they call them? Deep fakes or whatever? Yeah. Gosh, it's a crazy world we're in now. Um, anyway, well, thanks for doing this. I guess before we run, I guess we should say, like, people riding in the car listening to WTOB hearing this, like, how's the strike, if it keeps going on and on, how's it going to affect them as as viewers? Because I would imagine right now we have 
enough shows in the can. You know, you have Succession and Ted Lasso coming to a close, but I, I'm, like, how far out have they banked enough episodes before there will actually be a shortage of the next season? Like, I know Severance is paused, and we already saw like Saturday Night Live and the and the late night talk shows and that kind the of stuff. They're already gone. They're already back to reruns. So. Yeah, I mean, I think these uh, these studios uh, they do have a certain number of, of, of shows in the bank, you know, like, like kind of leading out, but you know, a lot of the legacy networks that we talk about, like the ABCs, the NBC, the CBS, they, uh, their, their schedules, like as soon as September, you know, the fall schedules will be impacted, you know, their, uh, the writer's rooms for those shows would be starting up about now, like in the next weeks you know um you know like abbott elementary that writer's room is not going for for next season you know um so definitely we'll start seeing things in the fall um and you know depending on how long it goes you know some of these streamers and 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 whatnot will start losing their content going like early early next year they'll start looking having to look for things to to air so you know, listen. This thing could end tomorrow. You know, if the AMPTP comes with a with a reasonable offer and comes back to the negotiating table, no, no, none of us want to be striking. We all want to be working. We all want to be writing. You know, that's what that's why we got out here to do it. But we also understand that this is an existential uh, threat. You know, to our profession, and we need to hold the line here uh, because if it keeps eroding. Uh, there, there may not be any uh, such thing as a WGA in the future. So we're, hmm. we, we understand that we need to, we need to stand up now. Absolutely. Well, hopefully for your sake and uh, and your fellow writers that it, it will, you know, they will make an agreement soon. Um, but who knows if, if it does, like you're saying, maybe, maybe it will take the, oh my God, panic freak out of the fall arriving and there's no new shows. Like maybe they will take that amount of fear to really shock them into being like, oh crap, we do need these creatives. Um, So I'll tell you the DGA, if the DGA strikes as well, I think that that might do it too. Like well, it would, it would shut everything down. If if all the guild, I mean, they need the all the, the guilds. So if they don't have them, then how they, they can't make anything. So yeah. Make, yeah. Well, Thanks for being uh, out there on the front lines for us. And, uh, you know, hopefully you, you get back, get back to work soon. That's our hope. All right. Jay Jameson, uh, writer on Superman and Lois, a native of Richmond, Virginia, and a graduate of American University, uh, the master's film program there. So uh, keep doing us proud. I'll do my best. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. If you'd like to know more about Jay's backstory, we spoke previously in 2021 when he first landed the gig on Superman and Lois. Hi, I'm WTOP Entertainment Editor Jason Fraley, and we are being joined by, why don't you just say your name real fast? Jay Jameson. And uh, he is a staff writer on the new CW show, Superman and Lois, which debuts tonight, Tuesday night. Uh, Hey, thanks so much for doing this, man. 
Oh, happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, full disclosure, Jay and I go back uh, away. Uh, we were in AU film school together. Uh, but I've loved following your career, and I thought it'd be a good, you know, local hometown hero, DC area guy makes it big kind of a story that might inspire some other folks in their quest for Hollywood. Um, so uh, before we dive into, you know, your whole backstory, let's start with Superman and Lois. Um, uh, give us the basic premise of the show uh without any spoilers because i don't want you getting in trouble <laughs> for sure yes I, I i cannot get told but i also you know i want people to enjoy you know all of the twists and turns and reveals so i would i would shy away from spoilers anyway uh so the premise of this story is uh we have superman and lois superman has been kind of on the scene for a while you know, like this is not an origin story. This is a Superman who has lived in the world and has been working for a while. He's married to Lois and they have two teenage boys. And uh, it's about his struggles uh, as a father, uh, Lois's struggles as a mother. But then, you know, what is it like? It, the way we kind of pitch is like, it's kind of like Friday Night Lights, uh, you know, but Superman and Lois are coach and... Uh, and Tammy, you know, so it's, 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 it's about the, the family drama, but, you know, and from the kid's perspective is like, what, what do you do when you find out your parents are, you know, you knew your mom is the world's greatest reporter, but what do you find out when your dad is Superman, you know? Right. So it's, it's, right. it's about, you know, kind of the, the family aspects, but there will also be a lot of like really fun action superhero stuff. So it's, it's, it's a fun show. Awesome. Now, did you, um, were you a big comic book guy growing up? I mean, for me, I was, I don't, for some reason, I wasn't ever really huge into Superman, but I love Batman. And of course, the X-Men, the, -na 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 -na. I mean, the TV oh, yeah. show is the best, but what, what, were you a big comic book guy? Absolutely. You know, there's, uh, even before I was, I mean, I was a Superman guy from when I was a kid, like the old school cartoons, like the black and white. Right. you know cartoons i love those there's a video somewhere like on vhs so i have no i, I don't know how we're gonna find it or uncover un it but there's a video of me at five years old dressed as superman singing i've been working on the railroad like you know <laughs> like that was that was you know part of my origin story um that's amazing and then you know my, I, I loved comic books. Uh, I also was a big X-Men guy. I think the thing that, that really, uh, the thing that hooked me into comic books was uh, Giant Size X-Men number one, Chris Claremont with uh, Jim Lee, which, you know, is awesome because Jim Lee now is, is, is like overseeing DC. So I was actually, you know, I was on a, I was on a big Zoom with him. I, I got very starstruck. He, you know, it was, it was, it was, we did like the table read for the uh, for the show via Zoom, and Jim Lee was there, and I, I that was the most starstruck that I got. So, you know, it's uh, I just grew up reading comics, uh, just kind of engrossed in the world, um, and you know, very fortunate to to have this opportunity to to tell uh, this story. Nice. So, um, let's move chronologically then. Um, so you. Graduated Hampton University in 2007. Um, and then before you got to AU, did, did you, and then you intern on a Spike film? I did. I did. I, uh, 
right when I graduated from Hampton, I, I moved to New York. In fact, it was before I, I even walked. Uh, I finished my exams, and then the next day I flew up to New York to start working on uh, a film that Spike Lee executive produced uh, called You're Nobody Till Somebody Kills You, uh, which was a, a hip-hop uh, slasher film. Uh, it, was a, it was a really interesting experience. Um, you know, I learned a lot. Did you even meet him on set? I mean, executive producer. He, he came to set a, a couple of times. It was one of those things where he was the executive producer, uh, so he wasn't like hands-on set every day. But it was a lot of like the Spike crew, right. you know, working on it. So I got to you know kind of interact with a lot of like his producers and some of the people who worked on his films before. Uh, so yeah, so he came to set a couple of times, but not you know. And I was, I, you know, I was, I was fresh out of college. I was like super intimidated every time he came to set. I was just right. intern, you know. So it's like, right. yeah. that's cool though. Um, all right, and then so and then um, <laughs> then a couple two big things happen for you. You you get the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts Fellowship and a full scholarship to the uh, MFA program at American University, where I met you. Um, talk about how that was such a big one-two punch for launching you. Yeah, I uh, at the time I was uh, I was in Richmond. I was coaching uh, basketball at my old high school, and I was editing like free, I was freelance editing, and I was just kind of was trying to figure out what the next move was. You know, I was kind of in that space of, you know, uh, I don't know what's next. I don't know where where I'm going to go, and. And I don't know if I'm in the right, if I'm on the right path. And those two getting into AU and getting the fellowship were, were kind of the, the, the validation. It was like the green light where it's like, yes, you're, you're on the right path. Follow, you know, follow your dream, go after this. Uh, and so it, it really kind of set me. It's like, okay, film is a place uh, that I can, I can, it, film is a thing that I can uh, pursue and 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 be good at you know it's it's and so that was that those were the two uh markers so you when you graduate you're you know you're from richmond obviously and but you know you're in the dc area um but you're there's i guess there's a little bit of a period where you're sort of in that bi-coastal limbo do i move to la do i stay in this area talk about how you were able to find some work on some major hollywood productions that came to uh virginia yeah i mean my goal has always been and continues to be to uh, make film and television in Virginia and tell Virginia stories. And so a lot of my early career was, you know, being based in Virginia, working on whatever came uh, down the pipeline. You know, I kind of, I, I became very friendly with the people at the Virginia Film Office. So I, they would let me know, hey, this project's coming to town, submit your resume to these people you know, and, and get in, you know, and so that's how I was able to start working on, uh, I was able to work on Lincoln uh, as an office PA, I was able to work on uh, Turn uh, for AMC, and it was just, and, and I just kind of ingrained myself, you know, in the Richmond film community, you know, and, and that just opened up a lot of opportunities in Richmond, but what I, what I eventually learned, and this was kind of the push and pull, uh, of wanting to make stuff in Virginia is that if I really wanted to, you know, make, bring things back, make, bring a TV show to Richmond, 
uh, bring a, a decent sized movie to Richmond, uh, I needed to go, go to LA, you know? So I started, you know, a couple of years ago, I started looking at, you know, opportunities in LA so that I could, you know, get into the television industry, start working my way up the ladder, you know, uh, of the, of the writing staffs and, and, and producing and all of that so that I could, you know, build up the clout to bring stuff back. And so that's when I, I started the process of looking at, uh, uh, making that move and I was fortunate enough to to meet uh, Reggie Bythewood uh, who was in Richmond scouting uh, to film his series Swagger uh, and we met for lunch and I showed him one of my short films and he you know offered me a job to to be his assistant on Swagger which allowed me to kind of start to put down roots in a foundation in LA uh, while also maintaining my work in Richmond because because Swagger filmed in Richmond I was able to uh I was in LA for the writer's room came back to Richmond for the pilot you know went back to LA for the post came back to Richmond to start filming uh, the series so it was it was kind of the perfect uh transition to LA uh for me perfect a couple things I want to unpack from what you said I'm trying to, I'll try to hit them one at a time um before we get to the short film which is Slave Cry and then your whole RVA concept. For that, real quick, um, did you actually get to bump into either Spielberg or Daniel Day Lewis? Isn't there a funny Daniel Day Lewis story? There, there, there is. Uh, so when I worked on uh, Lincoln, I went in and I interviewed to be uh, an office PA, and they hired me after the interview. But then the next day, they were like, "Actually, we have another possible role for you." Uh, we want you to interview with uh, Daniel to be his his personal assistant uh, in Richmond, you know, his local assistant. I was like, sure, ab absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so I go in the next day, you know, he was coming in to do costume fittings. This was like in pre-production. He was looking at the sets and doing costume fittings and checking out like, you know, houses for him to live in and uh so I, I went in we had and, and i met i met with daniel uh day lewis and we had like a really great like 45 minute conversation about you know my background my what i was you know my hopes like what i was interested in like where i hoped my career would go he talked a lot about you know his experiences with like the independent film scene like london and and, and all of this stuff and then towards the end, you know, he kind of looks at me and he, he takes a deep breath. And he's like, I, I, you know, he's like, Jay, how, uh, this is a weird question, but how, how tall are you? And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tall. I'm six, five. Uh, as I said, I told him the six, five has changed, you know, depending on the day. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm really sorry about, but like when I was studying about Lincoln and preparing for this role, one of the things that I, I, I noticed that one of the things I found out that was really interesting is that uh, Lincoln never met anyone who was taller than him. Uh, and I feel like if I were around you every day, I wouldn't feel tall. 
you got me- you got method acted out of the. <laughs> I got method acted out of a job, you know. Uh, and he was really he was great. Like, he was really great. He's like, hope you. He didn't know I already had a, like a, an offer to work on the movie, so he was like, I really hope they find something for you. And I'm really sorry about this. And like, I know it's, you know, I know it's it, it's strange. And I'm like, no, man. Like you do you. Like you know, it's like I. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Like whatever uh, process, whatever, you do, whatever <laughs> process you need to, uh, you need. But um, I was driving home and I was, I called my mom and I was like, yeah, mom, like I couldn't, uh, uh, I'm too tall for the, and mom was like, what? I'm going to drive down. I was like, mom, you cannot come down here and, and threaten Daniel Day Lewis. Like you can't, you can't do it. Um, but it was, it was, it was great. Like I saw him a couple uh, other times, like on set and he was, nice. He was like super happy that I, I I got a job. So and he remembered you when you saw him again. He remembered, yeah. Like I saw, like there was one point where he was, uh, like we'd been working for a bit, and everyone was talking about like you know he had transformed into Lincoln. Everyone was talking about how much he looked like Lincoln, you know. And I was like, all right, well, I've got to I've got to see this in person. So I positioned myself. Uh, you know, I had like a little break, and I positioned myself between the trailers and set. I made sure I was sitting down so didn't want to throw him off, you know. And uh, and he was walking by, and I mean, you know, you've all seen the film. Like he he looks just like the paintings of like, like he just kind of embodied this this person. He's just kind of ambling by, and he looks over and he sees me, uh, and he cracks a smile. He's like, "What's up, Jay?" And I was like, "Oh snap!" Like Abraham Lincoln just said, "What's up to me?" That's really cool. Um, he remembered. You probably made an impression. He probably felt bad about. <laughs> right. No. I, yeah. So it was. Uh, but no, it was. It was. It was a great experience uh, for sure. Because I mean, it was. It was to see a film of that magnitude and how it was put together. Uh, you know, kind of from the top down. Like that was one of the benefits of actually being the office PA. It was like I got to see how all of the departments work together right. and interact with each other. It was. It was really a great opportunity out of film school that is really really cool and then not to mention turn um but okay so uh so then um real quick before we get to slave cry because i know that's sort of more of the train in motion to where we are now but real quick uh memories of i know your your first feature film try i believe you, you came into top when that was playing in at the in fairfax at that film the virginia film fest whatever what was it called northern virginia it was the northern virginia film festival right at the angelica yeah. um memories of that you know take things you took away you know thing i'm, I'm sure you you pulled again you pulled together a lot in of a crazy shoot in a short amount of time from what i recall <laughs> yes yes that was uh that was quite an experience i was just coming off of working on um turn as a visual effects assistant and you know ted adams shout out to ted adams uh you know he was he was putting together this film you know and and he he was looking for a director uh and our good friend russell williams uh from 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 au uh you know kind of sent ted my thesis film ted responded to it uh went in for a meeting ted hired me and uh, six weeks later, we were we were filming, you know, which is like the craziest prep time for a feature film ever. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, I didn't have time to be uh, intimidated or scared because I just had to get the work. Like that, that was one of the benefits of it being like of the prep time being so short. It was like we just had to get the thing made. 
We had right. to get, get the thing in the can, get it done. And then afterwards, I could look back and be like, that was crazy. Like that was <laughs> that, like that turnaround and what we were able to accomplish. But I mean, it was just a testament to, you know, what the producers put in, like what the crew put in. We had a phenomenal crew. We had great actors. Uh, you know, we made a film that we were really proud of, you know, it, a film that uh, is positive and showcases uh, like such a wonderful community of, of, of triathletes. Uh, and, you know, it's something that, you know, still to this day, like a lot of people are finding it's on, it's on Amazon and a kid, like around the world, like random people will, will find the film and, and take something from it. So, you know, for me, it was, it was like kind of this, my second MFA in film it was, it was my PhD in film, you know, it was like, I was like, there's film school and then there's, making your first feature <laughs> yeah. you know it's like it's there's so many things that you just have to figure out as you're as you're going and and learning but uh but yeah i mean it, it's it it was it was just a great experience we made you know a film that i was i was really proud of awesome all right so that sort of brings us now to slave cry slash rva because it wasn't isn't slave cry sort of like a proof of concept yeah so yeah. um Tell our listeners, remind us uh, what the concept of RVA is and uh, how that sort of sparked Slave Cry. Yeah, so RVA is a pilot uh, about Richmond, Virginia. And it's basically like the premise is, you know, young black millennials growing up in the former capital of the Confederacy. And, you know, it, it was sparked by the fact that like, I didn't see a lot of people with my specific experience uh, on television. Like I, at least at the time that I originally wrote the pilot, like since then there have been a lot more portrayals that are closer to, you know, things that I've experienced, but like growing up, like my, my lived experience is not the wire, you know, like that's not, you know, growing up, like I couldn't tell you, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know where to buy drugs. You know what I'm saying? Right, like I grew right, up in the right. suburbs, you know. That but wasn't like, your but life, yeah. That wasn't my life, you know. But like the, the the people that I grew up with, you know, a lot of my friends like grew up to be, you know, one of my friends runs an ER, runs an ER uh, department in Milwaukee. You know, one of my friends uh, helped develop uh, the Connect for Xbox and used to put on video game tournaments that would sell out the Staples Center. You know, one of my friends uh, uh, became a clerk for the Supreme Court. You know, so it was like I wanted to write a pilot that was about the struggles of 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 those types of people. Like it was a comedy dramedy pilot about those types of folks who are, uh, you know, tr- like trying to figure their stuff out. You know, and the uh, the main character in in RVA is a young black actress who wants to work in Richmond, but the only thing they film are period pieces, you know. And I wrote that that was inspired by my experiences working on Lincoln and Turn, which were great experiences. But because of the nature of the the storytelling, the only roles available to black actors were slaves. Um, and my sister, who's an actor, and you know, she was going she was going to school when I wrote the first version of the pilot, uh, I wanted to write a role for her, you know? So it was like inspired by her and, and by my experiences. And so that pilot, you know, after I finished uh, my film Try, that pilot got into the Nantucket uh, Screenwriters Colony, um, which is this amazing program where they, they 
fly you. Uh, it's all expenses paid. You go to his cabin in Nantucket and workshop your writing with uh, mentors and you know three other comedy writers um, for for you know two and a half three weeks. And so coming out of that that program, I had this kind of this polished pilot uh, of this of this this project, and I went you know went to LA and and started having meetings. And, you know, they were mostly good, but like a lot of my general meetings, I like, it was clear that they hadn't read the pilot, you know, and so I was, it's very frustrating, you know, it's, it's like, you, I mean, and they were very nice and it, but it was, it was like, they were taking the meetings as favors to friends and they just hadn't gotten around to reading the pilot. So, you know, that experience coupled with the fact that, uh, you know, I wanted to get back on set. You know, I, I'm a writer, but I I also direct. And so I wanted to get back on set. And I wanted to apply a lot of the things that I learned from making the feature, making try. Um, so I, I took the pilot and I pulled the storyline uh, of the Black actor uh, out and made that into a self-contained short film that turned into Slave Cry. Uh, and so, you know, got together a crew uh, raise some money and, you know, film that with my sister uh, and that, you know, and now that film is, uh, has played in the, the Virginia Film Festival, won the Commonwealth Award there uh, and is about to play in uh, the Pan-African Film Festival, which is, uh, I think it runs March 1st through March 14th. Awesome. I love that it still has life. Like it's still getting shown in, in festivals. That's awesome. It's, yeah. It's, it's been, you know, it's, it, this is probably the tail end of the, of the festival run, but it definitely went uh, a lot longer than I, than I anticipated it would. Awesome. Yeah. It's a great little short. So everyone check it out. Um, all right, cool. Well, I guess that sort of brings us a little closer to present day then when um, you uh, submit, uh, not just submit, but you win. Um, was it the Wii screenplay competition? Yeah, the We Screenplay uh, Diverse Voices uh, screenplay. That's called Amer The American Way, uh, which yes. is obviously a play on Superman. So, but then explain how they gave you a call or a text or whatever it was to offer you uh, a staff writing gig. Yeah, so uh, so The American Way kind of like, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the times like the, the staffing opportunities come at like through roundabout, you know, relationships and networking opportunities. I, you know, uh, years ago I met uh, this, like years ago I met um, this writer, James Stottero, who, you know, at the time was a writer and executive producer on the Vampire Diaries, but, you know, it's been working since then. He worked on Gotham and on Krypton and on, but now he's working on a bat, that woman and he uh so he started circulating the american way kind of around his friends you know uh, who we worked with before you know kind of in the warner brothers you know uh camp and it got it it made its way to uh to todd helbing who is the showrunner of superman and lois and you know todd called me up at the time I was, I was still working on, um, swagger. So I was in Richmond actually. So they, they, you know, contacted me to do an interview and I was like, ah, I'm, 
I'm on location, but like, can we, can we do a zoom? Can we do a phone call? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, uh, I thought it was going to be a zoom and he just, he just called me. Uh, and so we had like a great phone conversation, you know, about, you know, the type of stories I like to tell, you know, he kind of told me, you know, his vision for what Superman and Lois was going to be, which, you know, I immediately bought into. It was just like, it, it just came from a place that was so positive, so relatable, you know. Um, I think a, one of my favorite, you know, ways of approaching Superman is, it's like, yeah, you want the action, you want, you want, you know, the excitement, but also, you know, the thing that separates Superman is, or the thing that makes Superman interesting to me is when he's faced with a problem that he can't punch, you know? It's like, it, it, it is like being, figuring out how to balance being Superman and being a dad is just such an interesting place to be, you know? And, and like just the point of view and the way the, the worldview that we were approaching it with was, was, was great. And then the room itself, you know, we, we started the room. Well, so I'll, I'll get into that. So I interviewed with Todd and, uh, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, my, you know, I get, uh, uh, we end the phone call. He's like, do you have a, do you have a lawyer? Do you have reps? What's your, and I, at the time I didn't, I didn't, have, I didn't have reps. Uh, and my lawyer is, uh, like one of my friends from college, one of my friends from Camden, uh, Alandis Brassel. Uh, and so I, I gave him Alandis's uh, contact info. And then, you know, I kind of, I went back to work on Swagger and, and, you know, came, came back to, uh, to uh, LA. We were working, you know, I'll just kind of, as far as I knew, I was just gonna keep working on Swagger. And then out of the blue, Alandis texted me. He's like, you got an offer, bro. I was just like, what? <laughs> like it was, it was, it was like the funniest text message. So I was just, it just shocked me. You know, it was just one of those things where it's like you, you get this text that changed your life and you're, you know, uh, and I didn't believe him at first. I was like, you need to forward me the email. You need to, you know, uh, <laughs> give me proof. <laughs> yeah, I need, I need proof. I need, I need, you know, I need to know this isn't a prank. Uh, and yeah, and like it was, it was just, it was this amazing ecstatic moment of wow like you know like i said before five-year-old jay you know dressed up as superman multiple halloweens you know and for for that kid to to be able to you know kind of step in the room and help tell stories and especially now and like that's that's the thing those like when we start we started the room maybe three weeks before the pandemic oh wow. and um and then when we moved into the Zoom writer's room, uh, you know, that like the, that room was, it, it was what allowed me to make it through. You know, it was like being in the room with those wonderful people telling hopeful, positive stories, you know, and, and just really like living in this in this other world like that's that was the thing that I held on to you know and that's the thing that hopefully people can can get out of this uh out of this narrative is like just telling stories that excavate the 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 positivity in humanity you know um and and that celebrate that and and that that's you know I can't wait for people to see it I can't wait for um 
for you know for people to to see how the narrative unfolds because it's uh we have a lot of uh there's a there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of like really fun fun stories awesome so obviously you're being in the writer's room or i guess writer's rooms if on zoom <laughs> various rooms yeah. um you're you obviously had you know you're with a bunch of writers you're having input on a little input on all the episodes, but did they give you a specific uh, episode that you get to head up? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I got, uh, uh, I'm writing episode seven. So that's uh, where I wrote episode seven. Um, but yeah, so we all have input on all of the stories. We break it together, but then, you know, we're, we're each given our, our, specific scripts okay cool well then just bringing it full circle you kind of mentioned it a second ago but how freaking exciting is it to be writing you know you were a kid who grew up watching superman wearing t-shirts and stuff to now you are you're officially in you're once this thing hits tonight tuesday night uh you're gonna be official part of the superman canon forever like centuries from now you your work will be part of the canon <laughs> it's surreal like it really is. I, you know, I have to uh, remind myself and pinch myself every now and again, you know, like yesterday they had the, in the LA, in the LA times, they had this insert that was the daily planet. Like they, like as, as part of like the advertisement with like, nice. you know, byline by lois lane and all and i just went and i had to pick up like three copies I had to find a newsstand and, and buy like you know grab that for the for the archives like just being being kind of in conversation with with this iconic character and all of the writers and, and creatives who have contributed to the canon and, and being able to just kind of you know add my little bit to it you know like it's, it's funny because a lot of people ask you know of writers previously you know what is your favorite you know what is your who is your superman like what is your favorite iteration of superman you know is it is it the old cartoons is it you know is it christopher reeve is it you know brandon ralph is it you know who, who what is is it small like, yeah right like what is your right. and mine has always kind of been this amalgamation that's lived in my head it's a little bit of this it's a little bit of you know a little bit of that and now like now it's the one that we're creating you know it's like now I get to you know kind of put forward like my vision along with like my my fellow writers like together collectively we get to put to put forward like this is this is who we think Superman is and again like especially in this time it's it's really uh it's really great you know to 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 be able to to kind of live in that world and live in a in a space full of like hope and positivity yeah well, thanks for uh giving all of us something to look forward to superman thank you sir <laughs> thanks so much for listening to beyond the fame with jason fraley our theme music is scott buckley's clarion remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time Thank you.